there are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek, and you've tuned into this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you with us again. Brian Searcy is our guest this week. Brian is a retired U.S. Air Force Colonel and the founder and CEO of Heredis Group, where he uses decades-tested military training experiences to teach relevant and effective principles in situational awareness and leadership. He's the best-selling author of the book, Prepare for the Real World, The World is Not a Safe Place, in which he provides training methodologies and programs for the learning of situational awareness. Brian's vision is to redefine how safety is learned to help make schools, churches, the workplace, and our communities as safe as possible. And his revolutionary training programs empower the learning of situational awareness so we all can be the true first responders who are prepared to survive when danger strikes. Brian, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Hey, Chris, thanks for having me on. That's a, that's a mouthful right there. <laughs> it's a hell of an intro for a hell of a career, so thank you for your time. Thank you. And also, of course, I want to start off by thanking you for your service and defense of our country. Uh, I, me and my family certainly appreciate that. And to that point, maybe you could share with us the details of your years in the Air Force, starting with why you choose that branch of service. Yeah, so I uh, had considered going to the Air Force Academy when I was a junior in high school. And as you can see, I wear, wear glasses. My mom recognized that I was squinting at the TV. So she took me to the eye doctor and found out that I had astigmatism. And he told me, well, you can't be a pilot in the Air Force. So, and that was the only reason I wanted to go. So I chose uh, not to go to the Air Force Academy or even go forward to see if I could go to the Air Force Academy and ended up going to the University of Wisconsin Whitewater. I played football and lacrosse and got a job with in sales when I graduated and um, really realized after about a year and a half that I did not enjoy sales. That's not what I was meant to do. And that was about the same time Top Gun came out. Uh, probably watched the movie 5,000 times. <laughs> um, but that reinstilled in me my desire to serve my country and my desire to, um, uh, you know, fly. And I just happened to be go by an Air Force recruiter's office one day and I went in, I just asked some questions and he said, well, this is the process. You take the test and you know, if you qualify, then maybe you can go forward. And I said, well, I'm not going to do anything unless I know I can go to a into a flying career. And he mentioned, mentioned I could go and become, a, I could become a navigator. So I said, that sounds great. So um, took the test. Sure enough, did well enough on the test that I qualified to go to nav school and was selected to go to nav school. Uh, went down to San Antonio and went to officer training school. And from there, went out to Mather Air Force Base in California and uh, had an amazing time. It was like, it's something I was meant to do. I graduated number one on my class, winning the commander's trophy. And from there, I went and flew AWACS. Uh, from AWACS, I went and flew JSTARS. Um, went to school in Montgomery twice, for the professional military education, uh, two tours at the Pentagon. And then I commanded at the squadron group in the wing level with uh, the final command in JSTARS at Robbins Air Force Base. That was meant to be when you walked by that recruiter's office, wasn't it? It sure was, yes, it was. Now I have to ask, did you have the motorcycle like Tom Cruise? I did not. And I, <laughs> I did not have a motorcycle. Well, that's not true. I drove a, a motorcycle when I was in college as a mode of getting around uh, the campus. I had three different jobs in addition to, to being an athlete to, to make my way through college. And so I used that motorcycle to economically get from job, job to job, but it was just a, a little motorcycle, nothing like that. And 
the last four years of the Air Force, I had a Harley, really enjoyed that. Um, but then when I retired, uh, my wife and I decided we'd, we'd focus on other things, <laughs> Got kind of got that out of our system. So to your point, after you retired from the Air Force, what drew you to the profession of teaching situational awareness to people? Well, I had a little bit of a, of a time to get to that. Um, when I retired, I went and worked for a, a, a large defense contractor. That's what a lot of senior leaders do when they leave the military. And you think I would have learned my lesson after graduating from college that I did not enjoy sales. I did not enjoy business development. I, so <laughs> I did not enjoy that for a year and a half. Um, so then I, I got out of that and I helped my wife build her apparel screen printing company, which she is just doing fantastic there. I helped her build the groundwork and now I'm just a, a sounding board for, for as she does that. Uh, with a friend of mine, we put together a, a, a company to go into high schools and teach personal skills to high school students because the, the statistics say that 92% of the kids coming out of, co- of a, out of high school and college have not developed these personal skills. And I think we probably all see that on a regular basis today. He unfortunately uh, passed away. And right about the time he passed away, we had the Parkland shooting. And I was approached by some friends of mine that were former law enforcement, former military, to get together and try and figure out how do we solve this problem? And one of the key things that I walked away from that three days behind closed doors is we've just been talking about symptoms. Anything we talk about is just symptoms. The traditional type training that we try to give teachers or students doesn't work, obviously. Um, You know, taking guns away doesn't work, obviously. So what we need to do is address the problem and what I realized is that we, to address the problem and fix the problem, we need to empower people with the necessary skills to be able to do that. And, and that situation awareness, it's the God-given gift that we all have. But unfortunately today, one in nine people have situation awareness, which means eight out of nine people do not have situation awareness. And they also do not have the, the 10 critical personal skills that you need to be successful in life, but to also have um, situation awareness. So I decided then that I was on a mission to make our community safe again, make our schools, businesses, and churches safe again. And the only way to do that was to empower people with the ability to learn and develop this critical skill. But to do that, it takes work and you can't rely on traditional training. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about that, but that that's a big piece of our program is breaking Einstein's definition of insanity. <laughs> so let's start with the two most basic questions. First, what is safety? And next, is safety something we can do? Well, when I talk about safety, it all starts with that situation awareness. One of the things that we talked about after the Parkland shooting when we got together is active shooter training. And is it successful? Does it really have a place? And yes, it has a place, but really it doesn't do anything to make us more safe. The focus needs to be on prevention. And it's all about what... uh, Patrick Van Horn, a retired Marine Corps major, he wrote a book called Left of Bang. It's all about that prevention. It's all about empowering you to have that situation awareness, to learn what normal is, so that left of bang, you can prevent bad things from happening. And one of the other things that really empowered me to do what I'm doing today is the last three U.S. Secret Service and FBI reports have all come out and said that 90 to 95% of all the bad threats that are out there today can be prevented when people know what the threats are, when you have situation awareness and you can identify the indicators prior to those events happening, but then more importantly, you need to be empowered to act and do something about it. 
And when people don't develop situational awareness, habits, behaviors, and a mindset by practicing a process, they don't learn how to act. They don't learn how to take action. And that's where most people fail. Um, you may be familiar that with the see something, say something programs that are out there, they're in schools, they're in communities. 95 to 98% of the time that fails because when somebody maybe sees something because they haven't thought about what to do, they don't know what to do, or they ignore it because they don't really think it's, it's a real threat. So they don't do anything. They don't act. And that's where we have to change our, our, the way we do things and not just be able to see when bad things are happening, but know how to then act and do something about it. So at the Paradis Group, safety starts with our own personal responsibility. And, and that's another thing that's missing in our society and our culture today. We think that if something bad is getting ready to happen, we just dial 911 and the emergency responders come and they're going to take care of it. Well, unfortunately, there's something called the response window. It's the time from when that bad thing is happening until the emergency responders can get there, which sometimes is 20 or 30 minutes where we have to know how to make our, you know, to take responsibility for our own safety. And, and one other piece that's really important here, when we work collectively and we all know have situation awareness and we're all empowered with empathy to take care of the safety of our communities. We go back to how it was 30 or 40 years ago and we all take responsibility for the safety of our families and the safety of our communities. And that's what we need to strive to, to reinvigorate today in our culture. What a novel idea of going back 34 years ago and, and take it responsibly collectively instead of pointing fingers and blaming somebody. You mentioned a moment ago about the, the process of situational awareness. What's that process look like? You know, what can we do to increase our own individual situational awareness? Right. So I mentioned my career in the Air Force. Um, my very first, or my very first command, which was my squadron command, was at Eighth Air Force at Barksdale Air Force Base, and we were responsible for the operation of the operations floor in the CAOC, which is the Combined Air Operations Center. And it's in the one that we have today is in Qatar, and it it is responsible for the air war in Afghanistan and Iraq. And one of the key things that we had to continue, we had to learn, but then continually practice on a on a regular basis is the OODA loop. And that was developed by John Boyd, a colonel in the in the Air Force. And it stands for observe, orient, decide, and act. And what that means is you'll have a plan, you'll start to execute that plan, but you have to continually observe it. You have to then continually orient your forces and your thoughts, your capabilities, because the enemy gets a vote. Not only does the enemy get a vote, but we're going to have airplanes break. We're going to have things happen that we didn't plan for. Then we have to make decisions. And then, like I mentioned a little earlier that where most people fail, then you need to be able to act. And I took that four-step process that we use in, in the Air Force and turned it into a five-step process that we have as part of our Paradis Group uh, program. It's identify, assess, predict, decide, and act. And then it's broken down really into two distinct sections. The first section is identify, assess, and predict. You do that everywhere, every time you go somewhere. So I've been in the same coffee shop 500 times, but every time I walk into that coffee shop, I stop, look and listen. Then I identify, is there anything that sets off the hair in the back of the neck or that gut feeling that isn't, doesn't feel right? It's not normal. If everything's fine, then I assess. Can I sit so my back's not to the door? Where are the exits? Is there additional security? A whole host of things that go into that. And then I think about, okay, if something bad happens today, what would I do? takes about 30, 35 seconds. It's because I've done it now year after year. It's just something I do every time. Now I'm prepared. Now, if something comes into my environment that sets off that hair on the back of the neck or that gut feeling, then I go into the decide 
and then I go into the act phase. Um, but the key is you set yourself up to be uh, to be prepared by doing those first three steps everywhere that you go, every single time that you go somewhere. You mentioned at the beginning of the show that one of nine of us have situational awareness. First of all, that statistic is staggering. Um, although my wife would probably agree with it regarding me. Uh, you teach people that there are 10 critical personal skills that need to be developed to have situational awareness. Can you give us an example of those skills? Yeah, so I can list them all or I can just give you a couple examples. But um, as I mentioned, one of the things that I started doing before uh, the situation awareness mission that I'm on now was how to ensure that our, our youth today learn and develop these skills we all probably see everywhere that we go that our, that our young kids are on their phones. They're absolutely not paying attention. But I would argue that it's not just the young kids. There are people my age and your age who 20 or 30 years ago had great situation awareness, but they've now established bad behaviors because of technology and because of the things that we have out there. So the very first critical uh, skill that we talk about is being self-aware. And most people understand that first part, knowing what's going on around you. But there's really three parts to being self-aware. The second part is knowing what you're capable of doing. One of the things that frustrated me with active shooter training is somebody would come in and tell somebody what to do without taking into consideration whether that person could actually do that or not. So in our program, we empower people to figure out what they're capable of doing. And then as they do that predict phase, they only think about those things that they're capable of doing. And then if there's something that they want to be able to do, then we empower them to go out and get the training to do that. And then the third part of being self-aware is knowing that your words and your actions have impact. We all can choose to escalate a situation or de-escalate a situation. You need to be perceptive. Um, people aren't perceptive today. They don't pay attention. You need to understand that it's okay to have different perspectives. It's a lost art today to realize that you and I don't have to agree. Matter of fact, it's better if we have some different perspectives. And then if we actively listen, which is one of the next critical skills, and then we do critical thinking, which is the next critical skill, then we can form our own perspective, but hopefully learn from each other. Then we talk about you have to do, you have to be able to have learning agility, realize that you don't have all the answers and you need to continually learn, you need to continually adapt. And that applies to that predict phase, because like I said, I can walk into the same coffee shop the 501st time, and I may learn something new based on what's going on in that coffee shop at that time. So I need to, to learn about that. We need to be decisive. Today, people are not decisive for a couple of reasons. First, they're afraid to make decisions. Second, they're not prepared to make decisions. Um, and third and foremost, they're afraid to make decisions. And we've got to get away from that. We've got to empower people again. And part of that is because people have not been empowered with the ability to take responsibility for their own actions. We need to be able to communicate. And that's not just like you and I having a conversation, which I would argue because of cell phones and those types of things, people have forgotten just how to have those basic conversations, but we need to know how to con how to communicate in a stressful situation. I talk to people all the time when you dial 911 on your phone, the dispatcher may or may not know where you are. You need to be able to describe where you are and you need to be able to have the, then the ability to describe the situation. And unfortunately, most people when put in a stressful situation and then asked to dial 911, they can't tell them where they are. They can't describe the situation. And I've actually had active shooter situations where we've given a phone to the simulated teacher in that scenario. Their phone is locked. And because they're under a stressful situation, they've lost their fine motor skills. They can't even unlock their phone. And then the final two, 
two skills we talk about are empathy and humility. One of the key foundations of our program is not just that we learn how to take responsibility for our own safety, but safety of others. So if I, when I'm walking in a parking lot, when I'm walking in a parking garage, wherever I am, I'm not just looking out for my own safety. If I see a mom and, and her kids walking to the car in the grocery store parking lot, I'm watching them to make sure nobody is watching them. If I'm putting gas in my car, I'm doing the same thing. Take any scenario. I'm not just worried about my own safety. I'm worried about the safety of others. But here's the power to that. Because I'm not just worried about myself and I'm looking outward to protect others, I'm automatically preparing myself to be able to take care of my own safety because I'm expanding the area that I'm looking at. I'm adding space and time if if I get that hair on the back and then the neck or that gut feeling. And then the final critical skill is humility. I'm fairly well trained in, in the use of weapons and martial arts. You know, if something bad were getting ready to happen 99% of the time, if I had to defend myself or somebody else, I'm prepared to do that. But I'm much more likely to walk away if nobody else, if nobody's life is in danger and my life isn't in danger because I don't have to win an argument. I don't have to, you know, beat somebody that maybe wants to fight me. And uh, Jocko Willink is a great example. Uh, if any of your listeners know Jocko, he is the founder of Echelon, Echelon Front, um, re- retired Navy SEAL. And he's been asked numerous times, you know, if and, and he says it happens to him all the time. Somebody bigger than him will come up and want to get into a fight because they want to prove themselves or they want to, you know, whatever the case may be. And he said, I walk away. I don't I don't have to get involved with this. And but without humility and without understanding that third part of being self-aware that your words and your actions have impact. That's why we see so many times today that that people, you know, try to settle arguments and disputes with violence and anger. It's because they don't have these 10 critical skills because they don't know how to have conversations. But most of all, and, or a big part of that is they think they need to be right and they don't have humility and they're not prepared to walk away. You know, so many of my guests as we've come through COVID-19 and the pandemic have been using the words empathy, humility, and grace. And if we can just go back to those three simple words, again, to your earlier point, going back 30, 40 years, we listen to each other's differences. We come to some other mutual agreement. You know, you, you take the talking heads away from the bully pulpits that you see on the different news channels, and the world will be a much, much better place. I, I couldn't agree more. And that's a big foundation of what we talk about. Uh, you know, in our situation awareness program, it's not just about safety. It's also about being able to take responsibility for what's going on in our communities. And to, like I said, we want to work collectively to do that. You know, when you have good situation awareness and you have these 10 critical personal skills, it empowers you to identify things that are going on in other people's lives. I've got a friend of mine who um, he teaches the active shooter stuff. So he understands. And we've talked a lot about what my program and how my program works. And he had a situation in church where this young 20 year old came into church and his hair in the back of the neck and gut feeling chimed in because this Something didn't look right. And he was concerned that this person had come into church to do some harm. So because he's well-trained, because he knows how to de-escalate situations, because he's prepared, and that's a big part of, of being able to, to, to do things and to being able to act, he went up and just started a conversation with this person and didn't bow his chest, didn't get into his face. He was quiet and just started asking some questions. And about two minutes into the conversation, he realized that this young man wasn't there to cause harm. This young man was hurting. And 
he went and got one of the associate pastors who came and talked to this young man and found out after the pastor talked to this young man for about an hour is that just prior to walking into the church, this young man had was considering committing suicide. And if my friend had not recognized that, had not had great situational awareness and saw that something was going on with this person and then got that person some help, who knows what would have happened when that young man walked out of the church. So situational awareness goes a long way to empower the ability to really help other people that are have a lot of bad things that, that may be going on in their lives. And then you can't be an effective parent. You can't be an effective leader without situation awareness, um, because the, the way that we need to be leaders and parents is to look for learning opportunities, to look for those opportunities to establish the habits and behaviors we want the people that work for us or that, that we want our kids to have. And all too often today, it's a term that I use is we parent or we manage uh, by metrics. We wait until it gets to a certain point that now it no longer, they've made a mistake. And then what we do is we punish their behavior instead of early on empowering them with the skills that are necessary to be successful or the habits and behaviors that we want our kids to do. I was on a, a plane coming back from vacation with my wife and there was a couple and the dad was sitting next to a three-year-old and the mom was in the seat row behind. And we, my wife and I jokingly said that the parents flipped a coin to see who was going to sit with the young, <laughs> with the three-year-old and the dad lost. So the dad is sitting there and for the first 15 minutes while people are boarding the airplane, he was letting this kid do anything, stand on the seat, pull up the, you know, the tray table, you know, rock the seat in front of him. And then when it was time for uh, for us to close the doors, everybody be seated and start the engines, this three-year-old didn't want to behave because the parent allowed him to establish that bad behavior. That's a big thing with what we talk about with our program is looking for those learning opportunities, but then like to see something, say something. If you're not empowered to act and do something about it, it doesn't make a difference. You mentioned a few minutes ago about going to the coffee shop 500 times, looking around, going to the gas station. You and I have done a little work together in the anti-human trafficking space. And one thing I've learned from that, that I now do, uh, there are different programs, you know, specifically for truck drivers, you know, things to be aware of and, and alert for. And so now when I go to the gas station or if I'm in a parking lot and I see a white van with no windows very far away from any other building, you know, you got to do a little drive-by. And so it's just little things like that, that I think to your point again, if we as a community start doing just those little things, Maybe we go from one and nine to, to two and a half and nine people. Uh, you know, that's a huge improvement, though, percentage-wise. Um, so thank, I appreciate you raising that. Well, and absolutely. And you and I are both associated with Voices Against Trafficking. And, and my association with them is to work to get to parents and communities to educate about how we prevent our kids from being victims. You know, the human trafficking is the second largest criminal enterprise in the world. There are great nonprofits that try to rescue the kids and then try to catch the predators. But there are two other components to the human trafficking cycle, and that's the kids that become victims and then the demand. And that's what we focus on. When we empower parents and kids to be able to identify those indicators and know that there's a threat out there, that's how we work to, to keep the kids from being victims in the first place. But you can't do that without situational awareness. And you know, 92 to 95% of all kids that are brought into and be, become human trafficked, it's because they did something online. The predators are, um, are, are experts at getting to their kids. You know, I'll speak in front of parents on a regular basis and I'll ask them, do you check the devices that your kids are on? Do you pay attention to the gaming systems, the text that they get, 
you know, their search history on their phones. And I get parents all the time that go, no, we trust our kids. We're, we're not concerned about that. Well, I'm a, from the Reagan era and I trust, but verify. And we ask the parents on a regular basis, do us a favor, go home, check and see what your kids are, what kind of text they're getting. What are they looking at? What, what are they doing on Snapchat? What are they doing on some of the other apps that these predators use? And almost every single time those parents come back and they say, I can't believe what my kids were doing online. And, and, and it's because what is actually happening is these predators are so great. They find out the little niche that they need to, to get to these kids and then they exploit it. And then the kids have, they don't even know what's happening until it gets too late. I had a bank president who went home and after doing this and started checking the texts on his son's phone and found out that his son was being bullied via text at school. And we know that 11 times more kids are 11 times more likely to commit suicide when they're bullied. You know, so this bank president was empowered and actually because he went through our program was able to, to, you know, give the support to his son that was needed when that was happening. Are there barriers, whether they be physical, mental, or emotional that keep us from being situationally aware? Well, as I mentioned, it's a, it's a God given gift. And, and the barrier today is that we think traditional training without practice, without actually learning habits and behaviors is all that we need. So people will go and, and have a 30 to 45 minute, you know, um, program on situation awareness or how you stop human trafficking. January is human trafficking month, yet it's still the second largest criminal enterprise in the world. That's the barrier. We think that well, and that's one of the barriers that that traditional training is all we need to empower us to be able to protect ourselves. The set, another barrier is we think our communities are safe. We have this mentality because we're not prepared and we don't under, understand situation awareness that it won't happen to me. I will tell you every parent that I've talked to whose kids have committed suicide, who have been human trafficking, they have regret, they have re uh, guilt. Um, they all believed prior to that happening that it would never happen to them and it would never happen to their kids. So we need to, to break out of the, the traditional modes of training and we need to realize that these threats are real, they're in our backyard. The only way we're going to make a difference then is to know what those threats are and then empower us with the ability to see the indicators, but then again, more importantly, know what to do when we see those indicators to protect our kids, to protect ourselves, to protect our communities. We've been talking to Brian Searcy and we'll be right back after a short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The White House doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. 
Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. If you're struggling to understand your self-worth or deal with mental health challenges, you will want to tune into Your Life Matters Today with Dr. Cliff Robertson. Dr. Cliff and his guests will help you understand and work toward what you need to build your best life. Your life matters today. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. And we are back. I'm Chris Meek, host of Next Steps Forward. My guest today is retired U.S. Air Force Colonel Brian Searcy. Brian is the founder and CEO of the Paratus Group, which specializes in situational awareness training. And he's also the best-selling author of the book, Prepare for the Real World, The World is Not a Safe Place. Brian, it feels like we see a report on the news every day or every other day about a mass shooting. Do you find that people react the same way to mass shootings that they do to stories, you know, say like shark attacks? And by that, I mean, it's scary and sensationalism, but it could never happen to me. Or do people tend to exaggerate the odds it, it will happen to them? Well, that's a, that's a big question. You know, today, I, I think what we all have to do is realize that it could happen anywhere. Um, I mean, it was just in the news that, you know, four Americans were kidnapped just across the border going into Matamoros, uh, Mexico. Two are dead, one wounded, and, and, and one is still alive. But you just never know when something bad is going to happen. And you know, another quick example, this doesn't have to do with active shooter, but I just saw a video on an airline where somebody was talking about getting into an argument with an air marshal and then rushed the, the, the you know, the, the cockpit. So you, when people today get on an airplane, they never think anything like that is going to happen. And um, when it comes to active shooters, what we have to realize is we have to address the problem. And, and again, not the symptoms like I talked about earlier. And and the problem is the individual that has the mental health issues, those types of things that turn them into an active shooter. In our program, when we talk about the development of situation awareness and, and going back to the Secret Service and the FBI statistic is almost every single active shooter does things, says things, behaves in certain ways that are indicators that people see, that people can identify. But because of the normalcy bias, which means that people yet yeah, Tom will, Tommy will never do that. You know, he's not that kind of person. Even though the indicators are there, they don't do anything about it. So when we, again, talk about left of bang and prevention, our goal with situation awareness is empower people to see those indicators. And then when you see those indicators, you get that person the help that they need. And if, if it's past getting them the help that they need, if you need to call the sheriff, if you need to call the police, if you need to potentially get yourself involved, um, but it's all about prevention. And then there are times when an active shooter event happens and there's the only thing that you can do is react. You, you're past the point of being able to prevent it from happening. 
even though most of them can't be prevented. The difference that happens when you go through our program and you learn and develop situation awareness, you learn and develop your own habits, behaviors, and a mindset, but more importantly, you figure out what you're capable of doing. And because you practice this process, you know what's going on in the environment, which means if something bad is happening, you can analyze it quickly. You can figure out what, what you might do based on what you're capable of doing. And then because you're also prepared, then you're ready to act. And with see something, say something, with run, hide, fight, if you haven't thought through your actions, if you haven't thought through potential things that you might do, if you're not able to recognize the indicators, if you haven't analyzed where the exits are or where there might be cover and concealment, the chances of you being able to do that and thinking of those types of things under stress is very, very small. Flying airplanes for as long as I have, I can tell everybody that's listening that we consistently practice over and over and over again to be able to respond to a whole host of different things that happen. And when you do that, what happens is that information goes into your, what I call your lizard brain. It's the part of your brain that you go to under stress. Um, I bet most people watching your your our, this show today, and I bet you, Chris, have watched Top Gun. And, you know, Maverick in Top Gun says, don't think, just do. Well, the other important thing that goes along with that saying is don't think, just do, is that as a fighter pilot or as a parent or, you know, as, as somebody, in, as a teacher in a school or driving down the road, you can only do those things that you've thought of so that you can just do it. So it takes a lot of preparation. It takes a lot of thought process. And, and that's why our program is different. It's not that traditional training, but you actually empowered over time to empower the 2190 rule and learn those habits and behaviors, and then to fill that library of actions with potential things that you're capable of doing to set yourself up to prevent, but if you have to, to be able to respond. A few times today, you've mentioned fight or flight. When do we fight instead of fleeing, and what's the best way to flee? So one of the slides I have in our program is, uh, what should I do? And the reason I have that in there is people are always asking me, in this situation, what should I do? Or in this situation, what should I do? The problem with that is that I have no idea what the situation is going to look like. Every, you know, I could talk to you about one scenario, Chris, and then in that scenario, I could recommend that you should fight or you should, uh, you know, run or you should hide. But then again, I don't know what you're capable of doing. Maybe you're not capable of running or or fighting. So maybe the only thing you can do think about is, should I run or should I hide? But again, I have no idea what that scenario is going to look like. We all, every single time, have to do this, have to think through our process so we know, is there cover concealment? So if something happens, there is cover and concealment I can use because if I do my process, if I'm sitting somewhere in a Starbucks, for example, where I end up having to sit and there is no cover and concealment, if somebody walks in, well, I certainly can't hide. So now I have to figure out what I'm going to do. But see, that also goes back to that initial part where I talk about that identify and assess. Hopefully, when we go somewhere, we put ourselves in a situation where we do have some of those things that we can do. You know, I teach my kids cover and concealment. I teach my kids, you know, to know if the bathroom door is locked, to know where the exits are, to know if there's extra security. And then that is all part of their process on what they would do in case something happens. Because... They may think this the threat's going to come through the front door, but what if it comes through the back or what if it comes through another door? And that's why it's so important to develop this critical skill 
to have a process that you practice and, and think about on a regular basis so that you learn what you're capable of doing. And then when, when a situation unfolds, now because you know what you're capable of doing and you thought about what your options are, now you can actually be empowered to do something. So I appreciate you asking, you know, what somebody should do in a certain situation. But again, it goes back to when I was doing active shooter scenarios and I would come in and say, okay, this is what's going to happen. And this is what you're going to do. This is what you should do. The scenario unfolded and that teacher was not able to do what I asked them to do. And I realized it wasn't because they didn't want to. It's because they didn't have the skills to do it. So that's why it's so important for everybody to figure that out for themselves as they learn and develop their own situational awareness. Do people, and I'm thinking of men in particular, overestimate their ability to disarm an attacker? Uh, absolutely. As a matter of fact, the Department of Health and Human Services uh, just put out a report that says that today, uh, most people will overestimate their ability to do something by over 4,000%. And if you look at our society today, we really don't have people, you know, that are, you know, are strong men, that are strong women. Um, 30 or 40 years ago, I bet that statistic wouldn't be the same because of how we were brought up, how our parents raised us, um, the way that we dealt with with things in in society. But today, we because we don't have these 10 critical personal skills, because we aren't self-aware, we don't know what our own capabilities are, um, and because we play video games and all of these other things, we're empowered to, well, I can do that or I can do that. And unfortunately, it takes training and it takes experience and actually having, you know, practice these types of things to be able to deal with other people's aggression or violence. And this also ties into another major concern that I talk about on a regular basis with at the Paradis Group and about situation awareness is, is people that buy, you know, firearms. Um, there are 323 million guns in the United States and over the pandemic, more guns were purchased than any time in the history of our country. But the problem is those people that bought those guns really are not empowered to use those guns. Um, anybody that I ever talked to or that wants to have a, a firearm to defend their home or to defend, you know, if they want to carry it, get a concealed carry, I make sure that they understand that there's two key things that they have to do. The first one is you have to prepare yourself from a mental health standpoint. You have to be have to know that if you're ever going to use that weapon to save your life or somebody else's life, that means you might be taking somebody else's life. There are a lot of people that have bought weapons to either defend their home or their or themselves, or they care, like I said, they carry and they get in that stressful situation and they're unable to actually make a decision and use that firearm to defend themselves or someone else. So that mental health preparation is extremely important. Then the second part of that is proficiency. For myself, I go to a range on a regular basis, and I'm not just talking a range with paper targets. I go to a range where I walk, I shoot, where I put myself in stressful situations. You know, the accuracy average for law enforcement officers in our country today is 9%. And if you think about all the people that carry weapons today that don't practice on a regular basis, their accuracy rate is even less than that. So we empower people to go take a tactical handgun course. That's the minimum that we think anybody should have. We also think that if you bought a weapon to defend your home, you should have somebody come in and walk through how you would use that weapon to defend your home. People today have no idea that a nine millimeter full metal jacket round will go through nine to 13 pieces of sheetrock. 
a, a, a five, five, six round, if it's a full metal jacket, will not only go through the brick in my home, it'll go through the brick in my neighbor's home. So we talk about making sure you know where everybody is in your family. Where are the safe places to shoot? What type of ammo should I have in my weapon? Am I going to just stay and barricade in, in the bedroom because it's just my wife and I? Or do I have kids in the house and I actually need to leave my bedroom to defend the home? All of these things that most people have never, ever thought of. Um, and it's not that they can't do it. They just have never thought of it. And nobody has helped them learn through that. So it's all about education. And it, but it's all about also establishing those habits, behaviors, and a mindset. It's something that you have to practice. So taking that to heart, like, like I just talked about, every time when I'm shutting the house down and I'm going to bed, I'm making sure the lights, the locks are on, the outdoor lights are on. But I'm also thinking through, okay, who's in the home? Do I have my weapon on me? Where's it going to be? If I hear this, how am I going to deal with it? You know, and, and my process is, and my wife is well-practiced, she's going to get on the phone. She's going to do 911. We have other family members in the house, so I'm going to go clear the home. Um, I've had people talk to me, yeah, so you go out with your flashlight and you show the flashlight. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, if I'm using a flashlight with a weapon in my home, I'm telegraph. if somebody else is there that wants to do me harm, I'm telegraphing to where I'm going. Now, I have a flashlight. Um, it's part of my defense because it, it does have a blinding light on it. But see, these are all the things that you have to, I'm kind of getting into tactics here, but um, we all have to think through on a regular basis to prepare ourselves to be able to do whatever it is that we need to respond to. I don't want you to give away all your trade secrets, so we'll stay away from those questions going forward. I apologize for that. No, no, it's, <laughs> it's absolutely fine. So whether it's an active shooter situation or some other threat, are there ways that the average person can de-escalate a dangerous situation without using violence? And how can we discern whether we should even try? Right. So first off, you have to learn and develop and practice the 10 critical skills that I talked about. Um, if you look at the FBI's five steps for de-escalation, the very first step is you have to be an active listener. So if you don't know how to be an active listener, you can never de-escalate a situation. You also have to have empathy to be able to de-escalate a situation. But the ability to de-escalate a situation is a learned skill. It's something that you have to think about. It's something that you have to practice. I often talk about verbal jujitsu, you know, talking about innocuous things to divert the situation. And going back to that third part of being self-aware, your words and your actions will have an impact on whether you escalate a situation or de-escalate a situation. I, you know, if somebody comes and gets in my face and wants to have an argument with me, I'm going to walk away. I don't need to, you know, to get into that argument. You know, or I am going to use verbal jujitsu or some other ways to deflect that. Um, you know, my wife and I went to a Mexican restaurant right at the end of the pandemic that we hadn't been to for two years. And so I walk into this restaurant and I stop, look and listen, and then I'm doing my identify, assess and predict. And while I'm looking around, one of the bartenders behind the bar thinks I'm, I can tell, he thinks I'm, I'm giving him the eye that I'm there to, to do something, um, because he's, he's talking to another bartender. And sure enough, he, he walks around the back of the bar and walks up to me. He's about six foot two. I'm five foot nine. He's about 195 pounds and he bows out his chest and he says, sir, may I help you in a, in a not very nice voice. And I had two choices. I could do what I've seen people do on a regular basis today because they don't know how to not get into an argument. So they bow their chest and they'll say something that escalates the situation. But because I practice this on a regular basis, because I have humility, I took a step back and I lowered my voice because if I get quiet, well, he's got to be quiet, right? 
And then I said, hey, thanks for coming around. My wife and I haven't been here for a couple of years. This couple in front of us right here, they just paid their check. They're getting ready to leave. And I was looking to to see if there's any any bartenders behind the bar that we used to talk to on a regular basis because we're getting ready to just sit down and order some bar food and a couple of drinks. And you could just, you know, and I'm being perceptive. I'm watching how he's reacting. I'm, you know, I'm seeing how it's going. And I, he, his demeanor just totally changed. He, he he went back to a normal posture. He quieted down and said, hey, sir, well, well, thanks for coming in today. I'm going to go back around the bar. And once you sit down, let me know what you and your wife want to order. And so I had a choice. I could have chosen to escalate that situation or to de-escalate that situation. But another quick story, coming back on the train from the state fair, my wife and I and our daughters, there was a, a gentleman causing trouble for five college students, five female college students. And I chose to de-escalate that situation because I had the skills to be able to do it. But more importantly, because of my training, I felt very, very confident that if things started to get out of hand, if he started to get violent, I would be able to handle the situation. That's why I talk about with this story all the time. I would never in my in my wildest dreams ever expect my wife to do that. I would expect my wife to take our daughters and those five college girls and walk to a different part of the train. See, so that's why it's, it's so important for you to know what you're capable of doing, be able to analyze the situation, and then come up with an action based on that analysis and knowing what you're capable of doing. In general terms, are we safer or more at risk today than we have been in the past? Well, you talked about my book, uh, Prepare for the Real World, The World is Not a Safe Place. I started writing that two years ago, and a year ago it was published. And I never envisioned two years ago that we would be in a society where we are today. I I believe a a big part of it is man-made. It's been made by our politicians, um, by no longer empowering the law, by allowing the broken window syndrome to get out of hand, by not holding people accountable. Uh, I believe it also has gotten to this point because, as I mentioned early on in our conversation, we've gotten to a point in our society where people no longer take responsibility for their own safety, nor the safety of our community. So we allow things to happen. Um, I talk about, you know, people getting hit on the subway. Uh, We've seen that over and over again. Well, if people that were around them had situation awareness, or more importantly, that person had situation awareness, the chances of them being victim goes dramatically down because the predators are looking for the easy targets. They're looking for that person that isn't paying attention. They're looking for a situation where people like you and I are not paying attention to what's going on and and could potentially intervene. You know, the same thing in a gas station, assaults and carjackings are dramatically on the rise. A lot of those happening in in gas stations. And it's because people don't pay attention to to what's going on around them and their own safety. But then more importantly, they're not looking out for the safety of others. And that's what I talked about early on is a big part of our program, when you learn the 10 critical skills, when you practice situation awareness and you, pr- you prepare yourself, then you're also now looking out for what is going on around you, looking to help keep others safe. That's how when we all work together to do that, that we're going to make a change and change the trajectory that is going on in our country today, where we can go back to where, you know, we don't have to lock our doors, that, that type of mentality. I I would never anywhere in our country today think that it's a safe enough place where you can't lock your doors at night, where you can't, you shouldn't lock your car doors. Neighborhood I lived in, everybody thought it was a safe neighborhood. A lot of people still think it's a safe neighborhood. In, in a one week period, five firearms were stolen out of vehicles and driveways. Now it's a bigger issue that people had firearms in their vehicles overnight, but the cars were not locked. 
people, you know, the vandals were just walking down the street, checking car door handles, doors were unlocked, unlocked guns in the car. So five guns were stolen in a one week period because people thought it was safe. They didn't have to take it seriously. They didn't have to have habits and behaviors and a mindset to be able to, you know, keep their family and keep their community safe. Well, and to take that point one step further, someone's opened a car door, taken a gun, there's probably a garage door opener in there, hit the garage door opener, you can then walk into the house with their gun and do whatever you want. You know, and I guess, so that leads me to the next question. You know, let's talk about some of the other dangers like, you know, stealing a, a gun out of a car, carjacking, assault and rape. And how do we protect ourselves or our loved ones, especially when we live in, you know, Brian's safe neighborhood and doubt that something like that could ever happen to us? Right. So it's, again, it starts with that, you know, situational awareness and understanding what the threats are and then making decisions so that you don't put yourself or your family in a position where you could potentially be a victim. One of the things you probably realize is one of the things that I have so much of are stories about how all of these things are portrayed. So I was uh, conducting a program for a small restaurant chain here in North Texas. And and most of the employees were, you know, millennials and Generation Z. And, you know, they have their keys on lanyards and a whole host of things. So I've got about 150 people in this program sitting all at tables in one of the large in gathering areas in one of these restaurants. And about 60% of, of the employees that came in threw their keys on the table. So I got into at, at a certain point in the presentation about how many people here thought that they just set themselves or, or, you know, to potentially be victims or to have their car stolen or something stolen out of their car. And they were all looking at me like, what are you talking about? I said, well, uh, 60% of you came in and you threw your keys on the table. You go into a restaurant or bar where there are people dedicated to be looking for people that do exactly that. You have a couple of drinks, you get engaged with your friends at the end of the, at the end of the night, you walk out to your car. You didn't even think that you had thrown your keys on the table because you've been so engaged with what you were doing. You get out to your car or you're walking to your car and you're looking for your keys. You, you can't find your keys. Well, a couple of things just happened there. A, maybe your car won't be there because most cars today have that car fob. They swipe your keys off the table. They go out in the parking lot. They find your car because they have the key. Your car is now gone. Or you had some valuable things in your car and those things are no longer in your car. Or probably the worst you know, case scenario from a safety standpoint is that person is in the backseat of your car or is waiting to get in your car when you get there. And now you potentially have become a victim of assault potentially rape, human trafficking, the list can go on. So knowing ahead of time and what these potential threats are and by establishing the right habits and behaviors, that's how you potentially keep yourself from being a victim. And, and that goes across the entire spectrum. It, you know, if you're uh, putting gas in your vehicle, don't be sitting behind the, the seat, the driver's seat with the door open on your phone. When I put gas in my vehicle, I'm paying attention even before I park my car. Then while I'm putting gas in the car, my head is constantly on a swivel. The car door, my truck door is open because if something bad happens that I can't deal with, I'm getting in my truck, I'm closing the door, locking the door, starting the truck and driving off. <laughs> Excuse me. And Brian, before I forget, as we get later into the show here, how can our listeners find you and your book? 
You've given a lot of information today. I want them to be able to find you, your book, and learn more from you. Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, so the Paratus Group, at, go to our, our website. It's www.paratus.group. Go to the contact page, send a, a note to the Paratus Group. There's also a page on there where you can download our document that talks about the 10 critical personal skills. And there's a link on the website as well to, you know, go and get our book. They can always just go directly to Amazon as well. You know, just type in prepare for the real world. The world is not a safe place or, or Brian Searcy. The book will come up and they, they can order it right there. And we have just a few minutes left. Leave us with your best advice on how we can be situationally aware and keep ourselves and others safe. Yeah, so situational awareness, even though it's a God-given gift, is something that we all have to learn and practice. We can't use traditional training. It doesn't work. We have to get past Einstein's definition of insanity. And more importantly, we have to empower the 2190 rule. It takes 21 days to establish a new habit and 90 days to establish new behaviors. That's why our program is built the way it is. It uses micro e-learning to educate you on what situational awareness is, to educate you on the threats, all of the threats that we face today, the 10 critical personal skills, and then we talk about how you go about enrolling in our program to learn and develop the, the habits and the behaviors of situational awareness. Then once you have learned and developed those skills when you're a parent, we also have included in our program how you learn the development of situational awareness through contagious behavior to make sure your kids learn and develop this critical skill. Our focus by getting to parents today and following that process is for every single kid that is out there to learn and develop situational awareness. So when they become teenagers, it's no longer one in nine people that have situational awareness. Now it's seven or eight out of nine because we have reinvigorated and, and reinstilled in our community the learning and development of this critical skill and, and how it empowers us to keep our families from being victims and to keep our community safe. And uh, I just look forward to people reaching out to the Paratus Group. Our focus is to do huge events in, in communities, empower people with how they go about learning situation awareness, and then allow them the opportunity again to enroll in our program, to learn and develop those habits and behaviors. And then even more importantly, and near and dear to both of us, 20% um, of every enrollment goes back to Voices Against Trafficking to, to really work to prevent and, and make a stop to human trafficking in our country. Ryan Searcy, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Chris. It's been awesome. I'm Chris Meek. We're out of time. We'll see you next week, same time, same place. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.